Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello and welcome to our latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. We're without Tina Martini today, but as always, we have Rich Lenkov of Downey and Lenkov. We start today's show with our returning guest, Dean Irwin Chemerinsky of Berkeley Law, also an author of 16 books and more than 200 law articles. He addresses why a Texas judge was able to decide whether any American could use the abortion bill in his latest article. We bring in Dean Irwin Chemerinsky. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Dean, we're really honored to have you back. We really appreciate it. So the Supreme Court, of course, granted a full stay in the case concerning whether the FDA has authority to approve uh, the drug Mifepristone, which is the widely uh, accessed abortion pill. Uh, that's not the end of the story, of course, right? That's a temporary end. But but what what do you see as the future to this uh, these cases as they wind through wind their way through the appeal, appeals process? The federal district court judge in Amarillo issued a nationwide injunction that would have kept Mifepristone from being prescribed, distributed, sold anywhere in the United States. The Supreme Court has said that that ruling has been stayed, but that ruling is now on appeal to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit will hear oral arguments the week of May 15th. The panel that's hearing that in the Fifth Circuit is three very conservative judges, all appointed by Republican presidents, all have strong anti-abortion track records. I would not be surprised if those three judges upheld the district court ruling in whole or in part. It will then go back to the United States Supreme Court. The stay by the Supreme Court stays in place, the Supreme Court said, until it either denies review in the case or takes it, denies, decides it. I predict if the Fifth Circuit stops the use of Mifepristone, the Supreme Court will take it and the Supreme Court will reverse the Fifth Circuit. The federal district court judge's ruling had no legal basis. So, does that mean the Supreme Court will eventually rule, in your opinion, that the use of these drugs is unconstitutional? No, I think what the Supreme Court is going to ultimately say is that the FDA had the legal authority to approve mifepristone and that therefore mifepristone stays on the market. Never before the district court judge in Amarillo's ruling had any federal court or any state court in the country said that a drug that was on the market had to be taken off the market. So do you think they'll get, do you think maybe this is not the case, but obviously the Supreme Court has shown um, by a very strong majority that they are willing to take on abortion, right? In the Dobbs decision, they overturned Roe v. Wade. Uh, do you think that there might be another case where they take on the issue of whether the use of these drugs uh, is either unconstitutional or should be better left to the states as, as they did in Dobbs? There are those who want the Supreme Court to declare that laws that allow abortion are unconstitutional. Their argument is that the word person in the Constitution includes the fetus from the moment of conception, and that therefore laws that allow abortion discriminate against unborn children. That's what the district court in Texas was saying. At the very beginning, he said, I'm going to refer to this as the unborn child and the unborn human. 
I don't think the Supreme Court is going to do that for the foreseeable future. I think the court's going to do what it said in Dobbs, leave the issue of abortion to the political process. Justices Alito, Dean, uh, Alito and um, Thomas issued very strongly worded dissents. What did you make of those dissents in this uh, in this case? I was surprised at the tone of the dissents. Justice Alito's dissent was remarkably personal in attacking other justices, especially Justice Sotomayor. I was surprised at the substance of the dissent. The Supreme Court has often issued stays of lower court decisions. And here the stays seem completely appropriate, given how out of the norm, truly unprecedented, the district court decision had been. And while we have you here and the privilege of your of your very valuable time, we got to ask you about the the questions regarding the Supreme Court's eth- uh, alleged ethical violations and whether there should be greater standards for ethics uh, for the Supreme Court. We know that uh, we've heard you know stories involving Justice Chief Justice Roberts and his wife, most notably recently Justice uh, Thomas. Uh, lots of stories have been released where he has accepted various gifts. Uh, the sale of a home. Uh, do you think, and there were hearings last week, of course, just uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts did not attend. What do you think the future is of this? Do you think there's enough will? Do you think there's enough capital these days to actually um, put together some more stringent ethical rules for the highest judges in the land? It is imperative that there be an ethical code for Supreme Court justices in an enforcement mechanism. There are ethical codes for all other judges in the country federal and state. It's unconscionable that for the most important court in the country, there are no ethical standards. My hope is that the Supreme Court will adopt its own ethical code and enforcement mechanism. I think the absence of one is a self-inflicted wound on the court's legitimacy. But if the court doesn't do this, then I think it's essential that Congress create an ethical code for Supreme Court justices. Last question here on legal face-off, Dean. Um, I don't know. You're, you know, I certainly can't remember a time like this. You're certainly someone who uh, is a legal scholar and who has written many books and has been around a while, teaches a lot of these topics. Did you ever imagine a time where in the space of about a week we would see, um, you know, this kind of action at all three branches of government, right? These alleged ethical violations. You you certainly feel like those are are, are important violations at the judiciary. Uh, we saw today a sitting congressman uh, arrested for 13 counts of alleged federal uh, wire fraud and theft and money laundering. We also saw yesterday the former chief of the executive found guilty for sexual battery by a and, and uh, defamation by a federal jury. What do you make of all three branches of government um, these days? It's, it's not the greatest time for the rule of law, it seems like. For the Supreme Court, this kind of attention for ethical improprieties is unprecedented. That's why it's so essential that action be taken. For members of Congress, there have been other instances with regard to indictments and even convictions. And in terms of a former president, there's never been a president or former president like Donald Trump. And so what we've seen in terms of what the civil jury's done or the criminal indictment or indictments to come is just unprecedented. But so is Donald Trump. Again, that's Dean Irwin Chemerinsky of Berkeley Law. Dean, thank you very much for joining us once again. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. 
Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. Professor David Harris is preparing local residents for trial of the accused Pittsburgh synagogue shooter. He's a professor and author of the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He's also the legal systems advisor to the 1027 Healing Partnership Check out his latest book, A City Divided, Race, Fear, and the Law in Police Confrontations. Also, his podcast, Criminal Injustice. Professor David Harris, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Glad to be with you. Professor, thank you. So we're entering, what, the third week of our year, uh, which is only in the first phase. Why, maybe you can explain to our listeners and viewers, why is the jury selection process taking so long in this case? Well, the jury selection process is in its third week now, and it's taking so long because they have to be incredibly careful. And it's a death penalty case. I mean, those are the two big reasons right there. Uh, you have a case of this kind of uh, notoriety, I guess I would say. There's nobody in Western Pennsylvania uh, in the federal courts district here who doesn't know something about it, but they have to make sure that they get jurors who say that they can be fair, who will follow the evidence and follow the law and not follow what they previously knew. The other thing is that it's a death penalty case. So there has to be a death qualification process. The court has to ascertain for every juror whether they have uh, objections to the death penalty that would keep them from making that judgment if the law and the facts seem to call for it. So they have to call many more potential jurors they, than they normally would. There was a very extensive questionnaire for the jurors to fill out, and the questioning is very intense. We have seen that the defense has already put forth some previews of what they're going to put forth at trial. Uh, for example, they have stated that a reason for this shooting was the defendant's schizophrenia, epilepsy. Um, what are your thoughts on some of those defenses that will be likely put forward? Well, in point of fact, the defendant isn't going to use those as a defense. That kind of information would be useful in an insanity defense. In a death penalty case, we go through two phases. First, the guilt phase. Did the defendant commit this crime? And there's no doubt about that. He was uh, apprehended at the scene. We know who did it. We know how he did it. It was horrific. But in order to get to the death penalty, you first have to have a separate trial, a separate trial on guilt. 
And in that phase, the defendant is not putting forward an insanity defense. He's going to use this information about his mental capacities, his uh, schizophrenia and epilepsy in the penalty phase. Now, the penalty phase in the death uh, in a death penalty trial is about whether he should be given the death penalty or go to prison. That's how that information will be used in this trial, not as a defense, but as a way to tell the jurors, don't put him to death. We often, Professor, on this show, talk about um, what you look for in jurors, uh, how you select jurors, what qualifications you look for. Of course, it's impossible to really predict what a juror is going to do behind those closed doors. But when you're dealing with something as sensitive as a death penalty case, as you've mentioned, what are both sides looking for? What's the prosecution looking for beyond the answers that they give? And what is the uh, defense looking for, a potential juror in their answers and their demeanor and their backgrounds to try to keep their client uh, out of um, death row and, you know, uh, only uh, sentenced to a life in prison? Absolutely. Great question. You know, uh, I came up as a trial lawyer during the time when uh, the the old hands would tell you, oh, you got to get people from this ethnic group or this age group or women and not men, whatever. It was all, you know, these sort of ethnic and gender stereotypes. That's all gone. Every good trial lawyer knows that what you have to do is find jurors who can put aside anything that they might have heard about the case. And that's especially important here and make their judgment based on the evidence and who will understand and agree with the story you want to tell. Now, how do you tell that? You inquire into what they already believe, what their motivations as people are. And so the prosecution will be presenting a case of horrific violence and saying, in effect, our story is this guy should be put to death. There's just nothing redeeming about him and his crime is horrific. So you look for jurors who can agree with that kind of story, given what they already believe. For the defense, it's really the opposite that you have to you have to humanize the defendant and they're looking for jurors who can accept that even though a person did one of the most horrific acts you could imagine that this person is not unredeemable irredeemable because even since this horrific tragedy in pennsylvania we've seen dozens hundreds of shootings right i mean every yes. week we're seeing another shooting what effect do you think this has on the prosecution's job i mean do you think almost the, the jury's almost desensitized in some way to the horrors of these tragedies because of the fact that they're so prevalent and each one seems more more, you know, uh, deadly and horrific than the next? What effect do you think it has on the prosecutor's job in this case? I, you know, that's a that's a wonderful question and a difficult one. I know that just as a person, when I hear this stuff week after week, I don't feel desensitized. I feel more upset. I feel somehow less secure. I think if anything, uh, it may play to the prosecution's advantage. Uh, they won't. I don't think people will feel like uh, like like they they can't do anything about it. And oh well, it's just like having a tornado hit your town, which a lot of you know the, a lot of the political commentary is like that. Um, I think people are going to feel quite sensitive to this that when they realize that it, it, in any house of worship, a mall, uh, you know, being uh, out in a park, that this could happen to them. 
Um, I think they're going to pay attention. I don't think desensitizing is, is a problem for the prosecution. Professor, you've been working and will continue to work with the community there in Pittsburgh and specifically the Jewish community uh, in in uh, working through this trial. Tell us why that's important to you and exactly what you were doing in that regard. Oh, I, I'm so glad you asked. You know, um, the 1027 Heal, Healing Partnership was formed out of a whole consortium of community groups, uh, everybody from the Jewish Federation to the FBI, um, you know, j- just across the board, because uh, when this horrific event took place, uh, there was support from all angles. And the the healing partnership was formed to support, first and foremost, uh, the survivors of the shooting and the family members of the people who had been murdered in their terrible journey through you know pain and grief and loss and the larger community that is you know we were all just adjacent to this when i say we one of the reasons that i'm interested in being involved is because i lived just three blocks from that building on the day that it happened i i've moved since but i don't live much farther now uh, i am of this community uh i am part of it and so they approached me maybe six eight months ago it was well back in the fall and they said the trial is coming. We know the trial is going to be traumatizing and difficult for our whole community, our whole city. What can we do? We were thinking some kind of education would help. And I said, let me be part of this. Uh, I've taught criminal law and evidence for more than 30 years. Uh, and I've often, often taken what I know and 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 talked about it in the media and and written books for lay people and so forth. And what I proposed and what we ultimately did was we created a a two session course for the entire city and the entire community, specifically for those uh, around the shooting in which we talked first about criminal trials and the criminal system and how it all works. And then about the death penalty and death penalty trials. And the objective of this was to build knowledge, real facts. It ain't TV. It doesn't work like that. Here's how it really works. And by knowing those things, you can build strength and we can be more resilient if we know what to really expect. As difficult as this is going to be, it's going to play out in real time. We won't know everything that's going to happen before it happens. And we have to have that resilience so we can support each other. That was the objective. And and coming together through that. So we could have done it online with everybody in their living room, but we had in-person too. And that I think was very effective. And, and I'm so proud to be involved in it. I'm teaching it again today to another group. Related to that topic, Professor, that very important work is uh, in the wake of this story selection and as this trial gets rolling, we've seen uh, a dramatic spike in uh, online anti-Semitic hate speech. Uh, we've also seen Generally, I mean, the Dallas shooter that just, you know, shot that outdoor mall in Dallas showed pictures of himself or at least pictures of himself with a swastika and an SS tattoo. Um, what effect do you think that has on the community? It obviously doesn't help. And 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 um, overall, how do you think that will affect this trial? Well, it's uh, it's incredibly hurtful and 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 it's not easy to bear to see that happening in your own country. But it has been happening now for a good seven or eight years, really since the election of 2016. And because of that, uh, people are going to have to be aware of it when they walk into court, uh, when they are serving as jurors or when they are observing uh, the case. Uh, I would expect 
that this will be seen, this trial will be seen as a landmark in how we as a community, we as a country respond to these kinds of things. You know, people want to ask me all the time, why are we even having a trial for this guy? Why don't we just take him out and shoot him? And the reason for that is that we believe in justice, doing the best we can as human beings to get there. And I think that's all about values. That's all about values. We know that our justice system is far from perfect, but when we act in concert with our values, we show what kind of country we want to be. Speaking of values, and last question, we have a minute left, Professor. Um, you have some rabbinic training. Uh, what lessons do you think we can take from the Talmud, from the Torah? You know, I, I'm, I'm proud to say I'm a, a follower of the same faith as you are. Um, and uh, I could think of some lessons myself. But what do you think you could derive from your rabbinic training and generally from our faith in the work that you're doing? Well, one small correction. I don't have rabbinic training. My daughter has rabbinic training. Uh, but all right. Uh, but here's here's I'll, I'll offer you this. Um, the thing that I come back to and I include this in the teaching I do around this is that uh, phrase from Deuteronomy. Justice, justice shalt thou pursue. You know, we all remember that now in conjunction with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She famously had that up on her wall. Guess what? I got it, too. And that's what we do both in America and as Jews. We pursue justice. We believe in justice. And we get that done. So as we think about what we're doing here and why we're doing it, that's why. Again, that's the University of Pittsburgh Law Professor David Harris and Legal Systems Advisor to the 1027 Healing Partnership. Professor, thank you very much for the time. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio, an Illinois city is supporting a ban on the mailing or shipping of abortion pills. With that, we bring in Mary Clafetta, the director of the Women's and Reproductive Rights Project for the ACLU of Illinois. Mary, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hey, Mary, uh, the city in question is Danville, Illinois, which is south of where we are here in Chicago. It's near the eastern border with Indiana last week, the city council, by a close vote, the mayor, in fact, had to cast a deciding vote, but they voted to ban the mailing or shipping of abortion pills. This is, of course, uh, in defiance of the Illinois Attorney General, Paul Mary Uh, the governor, um, the American Civil Liberties Union, of course. You've all said that uh, this violates Illinois law. How does it violate Illinois law? So in 2019, the Illinois General Assembly passed the Illinois Reproductive Health Act. It was specifically passed to contemplate situations like this. Um, The Reproductive Health Act makes it a fundamental right in Illinois for people to access abortion care and make their own decisions without the government interfering. And it applies in every part of the state, including Danville. And it specifically says that a municipality, whether or not they're a home rule unit, cannot restrict access to abortion care in this way. So let's talk for a second before we get to your point of how they are going to get around what you just said. How are they, how are they, how's how's the city supposed to uh, enforce this ordinance, right? This is the mailing of uh, abortion drugs to one's home, presumably. How would they go about um, enforcing this ordinance? Well, that's a great question. Um, Who knows? They appear to be targeting a clinic that is attempting to move into Danville. Um, 
from Indiana, so they do appear to be targeting a clinic, but that is a great question. How can a municipality attempt to enforce something like this? Um, you know, but and they claim that they're relying on a federal law. To be very clear, the federal law is a red herring here because a city like Danville gets its authority to enact laws like this from the state of Illinois. And the state of Illinois has said very clearly that Danville can't do this. Yeah, just that might be obvious, but it's sometimes lost, you know, when you don't think of too many ordinances uh, dealing with these kind of federal issues. So, yeah, just to be clear, uh, when you're living in a city, you know, you, uh, the, the municipal authority extends to uh, parking tickets, right, enforcing traffic violations. Uh, it doesn't mean it, it can't controvert. I'm sorry, it can't contravene state law, right? The authority for any municipality in the state of Illinois is the state of Illinois. Is that correct? Exactly. And, you know, the Dobbs decision that came out last year overruling Roe, um, you know, one of the things the Dobbs decision said was abortion is an issue that should be left to the states, left to voters. What happened here in Illinois was that voters went to the polls. They sent their legislators to Springfield to ensure that in Illinois, no matter where you live, if you live in Danville or Chicago or anywhere else, you have a fundamental right to access this reproductive health care without the government interfering. What power does the attorney general have? What will he do, you think, in response to this ordinance? So the interesting thing about this ordinance is I think that the people of Danville, the city council there, realized that they were engaging in an unlawful ordinance. Um, and you don't have to take my word for it. Their own city attorney, you know, spoke out and said this was an unlawful ordinance. And so at the 11th hour, they tried to amend the ordinance so that it does not take effect unless the city goes to court and gets a declaratory judgment saying that they can enforce it. So, uh, you know, for right now, it seems like what they've tried to do is enact just a symbolic ordinance. Um, so I, you know, I think that that is part of the consideration here in next steps. You said that in 2019, this law was passed. That was obviously done in anticipation of things like this and anticipation of the Supreme Court's action in Dobbs, right? Tell us, guys, walk us through how that worked. I mean, obviously groups like yourself, uh, foresaw challenges to, uh, abortion rights, reproductive rights with the Supreme Court being the way it is and with Trump appointing three very conservative justices during his tenure. So kind of walk me through how groups like the ACLU foresaw these changes and worked to enact legislation to deal with what happened in Danville last week. Um, so, you know, Illinois used to look a lot like some of the hostile abortion states. It used to look a lot like Texas with a lot of restrictive abortion laws getting passed by the legislature. And we've been fighting back in courts for decades here at the ACLU, and we had a lot of good court orders holding back these bad laws. After the election of 2016, we knew that Trump was going to put justices on the court who would overturn Roe, and that's when we were able to shift to a proactive legislative strategy here in Illinois. So in 2017, the legislature passed HB 40. It removed some old trigger language that would have brought back old abortion restrictions. It passed Medicaid coverage for abortion care. In 2019, the Reproductive Health Act was passed to codify um, all sorts of reproductive health care decision-making as fundamental rights. Um, most recently this year, the General Assembly went back to Springfield and passed further protections to build up the wall around Illinois so that providers in this state, patients in this state, people who are getting lawful health care in Illinois 
are protected from actions in other states who might try to reach in here and target conduct that we've said here in Illinois is lawful. Mary, in the wake of the Dobbs decision, what have you seen with regards to women's and reproductive rights here in Illinois? So anybody who's seen the map of the states where abortion is now banned know that Illinois is an island um, in the middle of a lot of states trying to restrict access. Um, Many states have bans. There's still a lot of litigation. But it means that people, particularly in the South, um, who are able to travel are trying very hard to get themselves to places like Illinois where they can get care. We've seen more people coming into Illinois for care. We've seen people coming into Illinois later in pregnancy because it takes some time to figure out how to travel. We've also seen sicker patients coming in um, because people whose pregnancies may be causing them a lot of serious medical conditions can't get care they need in their own state. So they're coming to Illinois sicker than they would have been and possibly later in their pregnancy than they would have been. And that's just people who can travel. Um, Many people cannot travel. Um, For many people, that's just not a feasible option at all. Mary, last question here on Legal Faceoff. We just talked to Dean Chemerinsky from Berkeley uh, about the future of uh, access to abortion pills. Uh, This is not the end of the story, obviously. Uh, What do you think the future is for those pills, given the current makeup of the Supreme Court and their decision um, recently with regards to the uh, Texas judges' ban on FDA approval of those drugs? We know that we have a Supreme Court that is not friendly to abortion rights. But what what is happening with the Texas litigation, even that may be a step too far for the Supreme Court to try to go in and unsettle 20 years of an approved drug and really disrupt the regulatory process that could have ramifications for any type of regulated drug. And so um, even with the Supreme Court, what they're trying to do in Texas just may be too far. Again, that's the director of the Women's Reproductive Rights Project for the ACLU of Illinois, Mary Clafetta. Mary, thank you very much for the insight today. Thank you for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast, we give you the latest on the case between Ed Sheeran and Marvin Gaye, and we bring in author and professor Jennifer Jenkins of Duke Law. Jennifer, thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. So, Professor Ed Sheeran won, right? A, after a two-week trial, a federal jury on Thursday of last week found that he, the singer, the English singer, uh, was not 
uh, did not copy Marvin Gaye's classic song, Let's Get It On, uh, in his song, an Ed Sheeran song from 2014, Thinking Out Loud. This is a really high-profile case of alleged copywriting, um, a copyright violation. Why do you think the jury ruled this way in this particular case? I think they were convinced by the testimony of Ed Sheeran and his uh, fellow songwriter, Thinking Out Loud, Amy Wedge. Um, that established that they actually independently created their song, namely that they wrote it themselves, that they were not copying from Let's Get It On when they wrote Thinking Out Loud, that they were just playing with chords that sounded good and happened upon the chord progression and Thinking Out Loud that has some similarities to the chord progression and Let's Get It On. And that was the very first question on the verdict form. And so once they decided that copying didn't happen, they didn't actually have to get to all of the other hornier issues about well, what was actually protectable. Um, you know, was there substantial similarity? Some of the, the more interesting, meaty copyright questions that I've been thinking about in connection with this case. They just they 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 listened to all the testimony and they thought, you know what? We don't think they were copying. We just we think they happened upon, you know, it was a coincidence that they happened upon this this, this attractive sounding chord progression themselves. And in that case, um, that's a defense to copyright infringement. Because you mentioned insurance testimony is being impactful. How how important and even more impactful do you think the fact is that he came in and sang with his guitar to the jury? I mean, Ed Sheeran's a big star, sold millions and millions of records. I think one juror came out and said that that was the deciding factor for her. Um, you know, people are starstruck. That's just a fact of life, even jurors. So how important was that piece of uh, of the trial? You know, I don't know. If, I, I think I read the same uh, the, the, the same quote from one of the jurors who said, you know, it didn't hurt, essentially, <laughs> that, you know, they got a free show, right? Um, but I don't know if it was a matter of being starstruck as a matter of they were able to have a lens into the songwriting process. And that's really what this was about. Um, it was about the ability of songwriters to, you know, use things that sound good, that work within a particular setting, within a particular genre. And um, I think he had to demonstrate that by coming in, you know, with, with his guitar and um, just showing how many songs can be layered on top of other songs and how many, you know, songs actually sound the same, not because there's copyright infringement, but because they're building on the same commonplace building blocks. So, of course, I don't know what was in the jurors' minds, so you would have to ask them. <laughs> this, is just, this is me from the outside, right? Um, uh, based on, you know, what I've read about the, the trial. I think to your point, the musicologist expert for the defense for Ed Sheeran said that there were 100, 101 other songs with similar chord progressions, including 30 or so that came up before the Marvin Gaye song. How impactful yeah. do you think that testimony was? I think it was 101 Dalmatians, 101 other songs are the same. No, I think that was impactful because you know, these, these cases are hard. I mean, a lot of songs sound the same, right? So when you're listening to songs, it's like, do they sound the same because there's some infringement going on? Like if I use the refrain, let's get it on, you know, that th we should be talking about copyright infringement, or do they sound the same because they're building on the same commonplace musical material? And so one of the features of this case is we weren't talking about the melody. We weren't talking about the lyrics. Um, we were talking about a pretty standard chord progression set to a pretty standard rhythm. And that's where the musicologist testimony, um, I think was important is he was demonstrating just how many other songs use that same chord progression from Let's Get It On. Um, and, you know, if I was sitting on the jury, I would think, oh my God, you know, someone could own this, then maybe Marvin Gaye and Ed Townsend would have been infringing someone else's copyright in those 30 something songs when they were Let's Get It On. And that would truly be tragic because we miss out on one of the greatest romantic love anthems of all time. So, um, yeah, I think that was really important to establish just how commonplace the musical material we're talking about in this particular case was. 
Professor, the prior sort of tenpole case uh, in this area was the blurred lines verdict. And in, in that case, uh, the defendants were found to be, uh, you know, they were found to copy some songs. Why do you think this case was was ruled differently? What do you think the difference is between this and the blurred lines case? Well, in the blurred lines case, um, I think Robin Thicke's testimony didn't do his <laughs> any favors. Um, you know, he, he was going through a tough time in his life and it came out that he had been lying about a bunch of stuff. And he basically said, you know, you can watch his deposition testimony. It's hilarious. But he was yeah. basically like, look, I was on drugs the entire year. You know, so like Ed Sheeran did not come across that way. But also um, uh, the nature of the similarities were a little different, too. Um, but mainly, you know, the, in this case, the jury just bought the independent creation story. They said there wasn't copying. Um, that defense wasn't really available in the Blurred Lines case. Um, both Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke said, oh, you know, we're huge fans of Marvin Gaye. Um, you know, we were trying to channel that late 70s feeling. And so, you know, the, the, that, that, that case did not hang on the theory that they didn't have Marvin Gaye in the back of their mind at all. When they were writing their song, um, I do think that case was wrongly decided, but it's because the similarities were kind of, you know, random similarities uh, scattered throughout the two works that for me shouldn't amount to copyright infringement. But they didn't have that compelling independent creation story that Ed Sheeran and Amy Wadge, his co-writer in this case, did have. Professor, what, if any, precedence do you think this establishes? Ed Sheeran in his post-verdict press conference was very vocal in saying that he took this mm -hmm. trial and took it the whole way to send a message that... You know, um, artistry should be supported and should not be the constant subject of, of litigation. So do you think this will have a chilling impact on further litigation or will it have the opposite effect and encourage more people to go after uh, artists in this way? Understanding that generally you're only suing very successful artists, right? No one's suing uh, an artist when their songs aren't selling the way this very successful record sold. You know, that is the multi-million dollar question. <laughs> what impact will this have? Um, it's just a jury verdict, right? So it's not a, you know, it's not a circuit court decision, you know, with presidential value of that sort. Um, and you know, there were two really high profile cases, one from 2020, one from 2022, the Led Zeppelin decision and the Katy Perry decision in which, um, the defendants in both of those cases prevailed. Um, those were both appellate court decisions from the ninth circuit. And it's not like people stopped filing lawsuits after that. Right. So, I mean, I think some attorneys, you know, who might look at this result and think, okay, if this goes all the way to a jury. Maybe I can't win. And, uh, they might be dissuaded from bringing, uh, uh, some spirit of the more spurious lawsuits. Um, of course, meritorious claims should go forward. If someone is, you know, using your melody, using your lyrics, infringing your copyright, right? And, you know, they're ripping you off. Absolutely, right? We're not talking about that. We're talking about, you know, weaker copyright claims. But um, I, I, don't, I don't think people are going to stop bringing <laughs> lawsuits. I just think that maybe the calculus, and again, this isn't me. This is, you know, trying to get into the mind of a lawyer who might be bringing the next lawsuit. Uh, it might change the calculus a little bit, um, but um, I'd be interested to talk to you in five years and see, you know, if anything did change, if Ed Sheeran was right. Once again, that's author and professor Jennifer Jenkins of Duke Law. Jennifer, thank you very much for the time today. Thanks so much for having me. It was great talking to you. Welcome back to the Legal Face Talk podcast as we move on to the legal grab bag portion of the Legal Face Talk podcast, a jam-packed segment as well. We'll get to our first two guests, Amanda Vickery, current chair of Illinois Wesleyan Psychology Department. Professor, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. 
along with Nima Romani, president and co-founder of West Coast Trial Lawyers, both Nima and Amanda, our returning guests. How's it going, Nima? Great. Glad to be back. Glad to have you back. And filling in for Tina Martini, we have another returning guest, Rachel Fizet, co-founder and managing partner of ZFZ, former clerk. And you may recognize her from being an analyst on publications like CBS News, News Nation, and of course, the Legal Faceoff podcast. Thanks for pitching in tonight, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Rich, let's start with probably one of the hot, hottest topics since this Legal Faceoff podcast has began. Uh, yesterday, the jury heard the closing remarks in the Donald Trump civil rape case. Well, yeah, they actually came back with a verdict after only two and a half hours, Joe, uh, which is a remarkably quick time, given how serious this trial was and given that it's the first time that any former president, but especially this president, has been found liable for any of the many, many allegations against him. And um, the jury in uh, federal court in New York found that he was liable for uh, sexually batter, sexual battery on E. Jean Carroll, who alleged that uh, he raped her uh, in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room many years ago. And they also found that he was liable for defamation in subsequently calling this whole story a hoax, calling her a liar, saying he never met her before. Uh, they awarded her $5 million in damages. You know, in many ways to all of us, that's a significant amount of money. In some ways to someone like Donald Trump, maybe not a significant number. But, you know, so many interesting and, and uh, important uh, stories coming out of this, uh, Rachel, not the least of which is, you know, maybe the worst deposition testimony I've ever seen. I've seen some, you know, amazingly bad deposition testimony in my career. And, you know, sometimes when I have some free time, I jump on YouTube. There's some great stuff. But man, Trump really took the cake, right? I mean, he said he was his own worst enemy. We know that he didn't testify at trial, which, you know, the plaintiff made a lot of, uh, of uh, paid a lot of attention to that in their summation yesterday. Uh, he also presented no evidence at all, which we'll get to in a second. But they did play his deposition testimony earlier in the civil case. And let's see. He said that um, for millions of years, by the way, I don't know. Have, have there been millions of years? I don't know the answer to that, but I don't even know if there's been millions of years. I think not. But let's say he said uh, in millions of years, uh, men, stars have gotten away with, um, you know, grabbing women the way he said he did in the Access Hollywood tape. Uh, and the greatest part for the plaintiff was he said, uh, unfortunately or fortunately. So according to the ex-president, it is lucky, it is sometimes fortunate that men can sexually abuse women in this way. He also said, Rachel, in this deposition, which is incredibly compelling, um, that he didn't know this could have happened, right? This rape, this battery could not have happened because he has no idea who E. Jean Carroll was. Never met her. She's completely making everything up. Then when confronted with a picture, a seemingly innocuous picture, I'm sure the plaintiff's lawyer didn't realize this testimony would come about when he showed her the picture. He looked at her picture of E. Jean Carroll from, you know, 30 years ago. And instead of saying, oh, I've never seen this woman before, as he said many times, he said, oh, I recognize her. That's Marla Maples. Marla Maples? Wait a second. The same Marla Maples you are married to? The same Marla Maples that you were attracted to, presumably? Well, how could you credibly say that you could have committed this crime because she was not your type, E. Jean Carroll, the plaintiff was not your type, yet you thought when presented with this not blurry photo, by the way, that she was your wife, who of course you were attracted to, who of course was your type. I don't know. I, I, I can only imagine 
that the reason that you didn't put Trump on the stand if you were his <laughs> lawyers was because that was only a little snippet. Imagine three or four days of <laughs> Trump doing that. It would have been the greatest yeah. testimony ever. But I mean, amazing. Just you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. If your defense is she's simply too ugly for me to rape. And then you point to her picture and say she's your hot ex-wife. I think your defense is, you know, pretty bad. And the jury's got to have been looking at that deposition testimony, scratching their heads. What what is happening? Because his M.O. is continually to say, you know, I'm entitled to touch women the way I want, but I'm not going to touch that woman because I would never like that woman. And then. I mean, you can't make that up. You can't make up that he would then point to a picture and say, that's my ex-wife. I mean, I also have to think as the lawyer was watching that happen, like just deposition gold. I mean, they're just they're just in a zone where they could not have even expected such a thing. Yeah, it's amazing. And and Nima, speaking of M.O., I mean, one of the crucial pieces of evidence, perhaps the crucial piece of evidence besides that testimony was this M.O. testimony, right? We had we had 11 other women who came into court and testified that Donald Trump assaulted them in similar ways. Uh, and this was because the judge allowed in playbook testimony, M.O. testimony. We saw this really for the first time, not for the first time, but you know, for the first real public time in the Bill Cosby trial, right, where uh, lots of other women were allowed to bring in and uh, were allowed to come in and testify. Bill Cosby was convicted. In this case, similarly, these other women testified that there was a playbook. Donald Trump followed a certain playbook um, and they were allowed to testify. Now, Joe Trecapino, Trump's lawyer yesterday, said that there are many avenues of appeal, one of which is that the judge allow this testimony. I don't think that's going anywhere because there is uh, some leeway in allowing this type of testimony in. What are your thoughts on a possible appeal in this case? I don't think there's a good basis for appeal. And like you said, I mean, this 404B, this prior bad acts testimony, it's very powerful in the sexual assault cases. Sometimes jurors have a tough time believing the testimony of one woman. Um, oftentimes, there's not a lot of corroborating evidence um, in these sexual assault cases. But when you have woman after woman that come forward, it's just overwhelming. And you mentioned Cosby. Let's not forget, obviously, you know, Cosby was ultimately convicted and his conviction was overturned. But the first time he was tried, it was with one victim, one prior bad acts witness. And that initial Pennsylvania jury, they hung. So the state retried the case with one victim, five prior bad acts witnesses, and Cosby was ultimately convicted. So, you know, even though the jury instructions say that the testimony of one victim, one witness is enough, some jurors just can't get over that hurdle. So especially a case like this where Trump not only was absent, he really put on no defense whatsoever, no expert witnesses, and just relied on cross-examination alone. It probably wasn't a matter of uh, if Trump was going to lose, but how badly once the judge allowed all these witnesses in. Yeah. And by the way, like I think his uh, many videos and tweets overnight on Truth Social, where he continues to call it a hoax, I think that potentially exposed him to additional liability for, for defamation, right? I mean, he continues to call these women a liar. Who's to say that not all of them will now file suit against him and say that we now have a jury saying that you lied. Now you're defaming us. So I think there's more to come on this story, of course. Oh, I fully believe so. I mean, this is going to embolden others to come forward. Obviously, you know, we know in New York, they open the statute of limitations for these sexual assault cases. They've also done so here in my home state of California. But, you know, to the extent that there's women that were on the sidelines, they were hesitant because, 
they have to go to toe to toe with the former president and his lawyers. I think this is going to embolden them. And frankly, I think it's going to embolden prosecutors as well. I mean, obviously, those are different types of cases that Trump is being investigated for. But I would be moving forward very aggressively against Donald Trump if I had a claim against him. Especially when you know that if you get him on video, you get him in the box. He's going to testify that way. So, yeah, I'd be licking my chops if I was any prosecutor with a case against Trump or a potential case. Well, absolutely. And with Donald Trump, obviously, he's so unpredictable. He doesn't listen to his lawyer's advice. So, I mean, that's the reason they could not put him on the stand. I mean, he might have said or done something that could have harmed him in one of the criminal cases or the case for which he's currently under indictment. Or it may have completely cost him the White House in 2024. So, although $5 million is a lot of money, uh, for Donald Trump, it's probably a small price to pay to give yourself uh, still a decent shot of winning the presidency next year. Rich, the family of Jordan Neely, the man that was killed from a chokehold on a New York subway, says that his killer needs to be in prison. This case is a tragic case of a man on a subway taking some sort of action into his own hands to stop what appeared to be threatening behavior on the behalf of another man on the subway. So you have a former Marine placing one of New York's most dire and vulnerable residents, a homeless man with likely mental illness who had been placed on a list, an internal New York list as one of the most vulnerable residents in New York. And you have this former Marine putting him in a chokehold and he dies as a result. And the facts are not really in question. There are witnesses. Uh, the, the man, Mr. Neely, was exhibiting what may have been threatening behavior, asking for money, talking about his hunger. And then he was placed in this chokehold and killed. And this is really uh, quite a controversy at this moment. There's no dispute of how the death arose. It's whether the Marine will be charged. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, there's no question of, of like you said, of, of what happened here. There's video of it. Of course, the question is whether he acted um, in a way that would absolve him of liability in New York state. I mean, most states like New York does has laws that allow you to defend yourself if you perceive that either you or someone close to you is in uh, imminent danger of harm. Sometimes it even extends to property. In this case, the question will be in deciding whether to charge this ex-Marine uh, is whether he legitimately, reasonably felt that he was in danger. Uh, we don't know, right? It's going to depend on a lot of the investigation. I think there's frequently um, you know, a rush to judgment. There's a temptation to rush to judgment of these kind of cases, especially when there's video, especially in these times, Rachel, when you know these stories are so prevalent and we're very cognizant of civil rights and the violation of civil rights we've seen on so many occasions, leading to the death of so many individuals. So I think it's appropriate to have a very strong reaction when you see this. I also think that we need to let the investigation take its course um, because you know, we do want citizens. We tell people every day, if you see something, say something. Now, we don't say if you see something, choke someone, admittedly, and perhaps this was excessive, but maybe it wasn't. Um, I think, you know, we've, we we want people to get involved. We want people to, you know, perhaps get involved when there are dangers to others. There's a line there, of course, right? An ex-Marine, you know, presumably, as the family said, he knew how to, um, the family's lawyer said, he knew how to subdue someone without choking them. So we'll see how the investigation rolls out. Um, Amanda, what are your thoughts? I assume you've seen the video as we all have. What are your thoughts on whether the Marine will be charged? 
Well, I mean, it's just a heartbreaking case all the way around, right? I mean, so different from what we're used to seeing in the news where, you know, the recent shooting in Texas where someone woke up that morning and thought, I'm going to go shoot up a mall and kill somebody. This guy didn't wake up that morning and think, I'm going to go choke someone to death on the subway. But at the same time, of course, you have a responsibility for what you do. People who drive drunk don't think I'm going to kill someone tonight, but they still get in trouble if they do. And I think this is going to be a really hard call on to whether or not to charge him. And then if they charge him, are you going to find 12 people to convict him? Uh, you know, I looked up the the news article on, on Reddit. I was curious to read people's comments, which usually reading through online comments on something is never a good idea. And, and Reddit seems to, to lean a little more liberal. And I was surprised to find that the majority of comments I came across were supporting um the, the perpetrator saying, you don't know what it's like on the subway. You don't know how scary it can be when someone is acting like that. And I was surprised to see so many of the comments leaning that way. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, Nemo, what are your thoughts? Will he be charged? Should he be charged? I think he should be charged. And when you're talking about self-defense and you really got to look at deadly force, that's what we're dealing with here. And it's not just defending yourself or others. You have to be a risk of death or serious bodily injury. And that's the standard in New York, and that's the standard in every state. So, you know, what you're dealing with here, and you have to distinguish between a gun case and a chokeout case. And you're going back to Derek Chauvin and George Floyd. This is someone that choked this individual out for several minutes, right, until he died. This isn't someone that made a split-second decision with limited information, shot someone, and killed that person. So I think jurors are going to look at a type of case like this differently. Um, I'm sure the medical experts are going to come in and say that there was a period of time where Neely was incapacitated, was no longer a threat, and you continue to apply that chokehold, and therefore you killed them. And I think just like the Eight minutes in the George Floyd case was the reason that Chauvin was convicted of second degree murder. I expect charges in this case, especially in a pretty liberal jurisdiction like New York, when you're dealing with race issues and obviously homeless and mental health issues in this case. Um, I expect this case to be prosecuted, but I also expect it to go to trial because. But to that point, and I'll open, yeah, to that, that's a great point. But to that point, we'll open it up quickly to everyone. I mean, you can't look at this a case without looking at it, uh, considering the race of the individuals involved, right? Especially in the wake of the George Floyd murder. Uh, we've got a white individual who uh, choked a black homeless person to death. I mean, that's got to be a factor, no matter what anyone says, it will be a factor in deciding whether to charge this individual. Yes, right? I mean, I think race is a factor, obviously, but I also think leaning on the other side of not charging him, which is unfortunately people's biases against the homeless population. And that's where you're going to have the issue of people sympathizing with the former Marine choking him. Because as Nima said, it is legally whether he was afraid of deadly force being used against him or someone else, and then whether that was ceased. And once he was in the chokehold, he certainly wasn't going to use deadly force against anyone. And there was no reason for him to die in that chokehold. But what are people's biases against a black man and a more importantly, a black homeless man with mental illness. And I think that's where you're getting sympathy towards people that have feared for themselves when passing homeless people or really being in an enclosed train with someone who they are afraid of just by the nature of what's happening at that moment uh, relating to mental illness, homelessness, and again, racism. Rich, quite the plot twist. A woman who wrote a book grieving on her husband's death is now being charged with the murder. 
Yeah, just yesterday in Salt Lake City, uh, this author named Corey Richens was arrested, or actually Monday was arrested, uh, after her husband, she found him cold to the touch in March of 22. Um, this is a mother of three. She said that she had made her husband a, um, uh, a vodka drink to celebrate him selling a home and then went to sleep. And she later returned and found her husband unresponsive, called 911. Uh, a medical examiner found that he had five times the lethal dosage of fentanyl in his system. Uh, she wrote a book, in fact, about how to deal with grief when you lose a father and a husband. Um, I think it, I think I saw it got five stars in Amazon. Well, fast forward to about a year later, Rachel, and it turns out that she is now accused of his murder. Um, she There's some records of her talking to a drug dealer asking for the Michael Jackson dosage of fentanyl. Um, pretty damaging evidence, of course. But um, I think the, you know this is kind of in line with uh, we were talking to Amanda earlier, who's uh, an expert in true crime stories. But, but Rachel, you deal with these stories a lot. I'm constantly baffled by the stupidity, by the hubris of these people. You know, we've got people who are on video putting poison in their husband's drink. We have people who are searching ways to hide a body, uh, the easiest way to kill someone. Um, we've got, um, you know, this woman who has the nerve to allegedly kill her husband and then write a book about it. So we worry about black men in this country and you know who is less worried about themselves and that is white ladies. And this woman thought I can do anything. I'm going to kill my husband. I'm going to give him the Michael Jackson. I'm going to grieve about it. And then I'm going to talk to little kids about my own grief and my family's grief relating to the death of the man I killed. I mean, that is really taking it up a notch. And they are now compiling the evidence against her. I mean, it's taken them a year. Let's be honest. She's had time to get a book published. So it was kind of working, but it seems like it's all going to come back. Professor, what is it? This is, of course, in your wheelhouse. What is it about the psychology of murderers uh, in particular who think that they could do this and get away with it. Is that kind of inherent to some of the qualities of, of, of murder? I mean, you know, it's like the typical cliche of a murderer turning back to the scene of the crime, but this is even, even you know, even, even worse in, in many respects. I mean, who thinks that they're gonna Google the words how to, you know, bury someone or, or how to, you know, not get detected for killing someone and not get caught? I mean, the level of narcissism, right? And psychopathy has gotta be pretty high in these cases. If all you have to do is turn on a crime show in the past 10 years and hear to hear about someone getting caught because of what they texted on their cell phone or because they're carrying their cell phone around with them when they said they were at home, not moving somewhere. How did she not think that? And I think it's what Rachel was saying. She just never thought she would even be a suspect, that no one would even even look to her, that, that she was good to go. And then, you know, this came out pretty quickly. Was she was she working on it before she even killed him? <laughs> Allegedly killed him, right? That's a pretty big turnaround. And to think, wouldn't you think if you killed your spouse and you thought you'd gotten away with it, that you would just want to lay low and not bring a lot of attention to it? And instead, you want to publish a, a children's book and, and gain perhaps national attention? I think that would be the last thing I would want to do. She had to have been so confident that she had committed the perfect crime when really she committed a, a pretty dumb one, it sounds like. 
it's almost like if you swapped the OJ situation where he writes the book after it all and titles it, if I had done it, but uh, we won't go down that road message in the book. If you read every fifth word, there's a confession. <laughs> Just the guilty conscious going through as an author. Uh, Rachel, let's move on to another topic we've been following along. Uh, George Santos may be facing federal criminal charges. Oh, he's facing them. There is a 13 count indictment uh, laying out a web of fraud and deceit that just outlines, my guess is the tip of the iceberg of what George Santos has been up to. Uh, A lot of it is related to campaign donations, illicit campaign donations, his own personal use of those funds, and that he is now being charged for wire fraud, money laundering, theft of public funds, and making false statements to Congress. Um, I think this is probably no surprise that George Santos was out using money for personal expenses, uh, designer clothes, credit card payments, and the like, and that he lied on disclosure forms. I mean, I think this has been brewing, and it's basically probably a bit of a task to figure out what not to charge him with um, as it relates to all of the various investigations and the various avenues that one can go. Um, my, My guess is George Santos is a straight up sociopath and he is still in Congress supported by Kevin McCarthy. Again, I mean, just talking about the last story, I mean, you know, it's almost on the same line of thought, right? You could do all these things so brazenly, so obviously, right, to, to all of us, and, and think you could get away with it. Not only that, but but run for re-election. You know, this guy already announced that he's running for re-election. Uh, and, you know, if you read the, 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 the complaint, it's pretty straightforward. It seems like a pretty clear case. It's really not that complicated. And by the way, this is only the tip of the iceberg. There's many other investigations ongoing involving uh, this guy. But, um, yeah, I mean, the the narcissism in this case as well, to think that he could do all this, clearly lie and just chalk it up to some miscommunications and not get caught. I mean, this is what federal prosecutors live for. They live for cases like this. You know, they're going to listen to his press conferences of the past and just, you know, do everything they can to go after him. So not surprised. And again, only the tip of the iceberg, it seems like. Oh, yeah. I got to defer to Amanda on the diagnosis, but I can tell you that George Santos is a liar. And this is a great case for the prosecution. You have three different kind of schemes to defraud. You have your campaign finance violation. You know, you're taking campaign funds, you're using it for personal expenses, designer clothing, maybe those expensive sweaters he's wearing, paying off credit cards, just taking out straight cash and just laundering it through your personal bank account. So really easy case for the feds to prove you got that electronic paper trail. Then, of course, you have just the good old fashioned uh, unemployment insurance fraud, right? You're working for a firm down there in Florida, an investment firm, by the way, that the feds shut down. And you're claiming unemployment benefits and you're getting money from the state of New York. So, I mean, obviously, you got your salary, you're getting paid unemployment anyway. That's unlawful. Everyone knows that. Third is something you don't really see too often is, you know, those congressional disclosures, obviously candidates have to make disclosures, financial disclosures. And in this particular case, he inflated actually some earnings and some bank account assets. And he, you know, he lied about others. So um, that's going to be an interesting charge. But 
But I agree. I mean, here's someone that has, you know, been caught up in so many fraudulent schemes and there's so many different accusations that he's ripped off charities, engaged in Ponzi schemes, even as a case going on in Brazil for check fraud. So um, I think things are going to end very badly for George Santos, even though the type of person he is, I doubt he's going to admit any of this and will probably push his case to trial. And Professor, I wonder wonder if the fact that he has been lying for so long if he will use that in his defense to claim some sort of mental health issue, I mean, what else could he claim at this point? I mean, the, the list is huge. And this is different from a one-off, I snapped and killed my spouse or something. He's got 20 years worth of, of lying and bizarre, weird lies and from his education, you know, to his jobs, to, to something about stealing a dog. And I could see if he thinks he's going to be uh, serving some real prison time, will he go the mental health issue? And he might have a good case because this has been going on for a while. And, and as, as as Rachel mentioned, I mean, remarkably, he could still hold a congressional seat, uh, just like, you know, the former president can uh, be elected president, even with a crime conviction. My question is, you know, Santos has been thrown off all committees. I mean, what does the guy do all day? Isn't the job of a congressperson basically to you know be in those committees like, what does this guy do all day? Who knows? But can't wait to see him behind bars personally. Yeah, he, he is someone you love to hate. Rich honestly, <laughs> He's the Martin Scurley of Congress. <laughs> Rich, I honestly feel like it's been a while since we've covered a story of a food not actually being completely a certain type of food. And we return with the tuna from Subway. Yeah, it's been, what, a whole maybe two episodes. I mean, these cases are constantly being filed. This is one that was filed a long time ago. Uh, this woman, Neelima Amin, said that uh, Subway wasn't really serving tuna salad. She said that uh, there should be a class action against Subway. That was, she was not able to establish a class, but she still alleged that uh, the tuna salad was made from anything but tuna uh, instead, it was a composite of ingredients, including chicken, pork, cattle, and other fish species. Um, she now is asking a court to dismiss her lawsuit, not because it lacks merit, Rachel, which, of course, we all think it does, but because she is now pregnant with her third trial, her third child, and because of morning sickness and debilitating conditions, as she prepares for a child, she, can, she is unable to proceed this is my favorite. With the obligations of a plaintiff. <laughs> obligations of a plaintiff? What, what does that mean? You mean filing a nonsensical lawsuit and sitting back waiting for, you know, some company to pay you money to, to make it go away? What are the obligations of a plaintiff? Come on. You have to pick up the phone on occasion yeah. and you might, you know, get deposed. But uh, she might have thought this one through. And I think she's just trying to get out without a lawsuit and you know, damages against her for this crazy lawsuit that she found a lawyer to file on her behalf. So now she, you know, she could be liable for their attorney's fees, which I think they're claiming is over $600,000. And now you've got some obligations of a plaintiff. Should that come true? Yeah, Nima, uh, $618,000 in legal bills. Um, Subway has 37,000 restaurants in more than 100 countries. They, of course, have uh, vigorously defended these allegations. They're saying they're, you know, totally without merit. What struck me was that the plaintiff said that she ordered Subway tuna more than 100 times before suing the company. I mean, listen, Subway's delicious, but 
I don't know, maybe try something else. Yeah. I'm just spitballing here, but maybe a hundred times of tuna salad consumption from Subway. Maybe a lawsuit's not your biggest priority. You know, maybe you should try to avoid dying tomorrow from eating all that, you know, mayonnaise and infected junk. But I don't know. I mean, Subway's, I, I, Subway's good, but a hundred times sounds like a lot more than a hundred times. But Nima, you take, what's your thought? Would you take this? Yeah, um, absolutely not. And I'm a plaintiff's lawyer and, you know, I don't have to pay for Rachel's really expensive hourly rate. So, I mean, I think today's episode has to be, you know, the mental health episode because we talked about Santos. Now we have this plaintiff who's clearly, um, I don't know. Are you even supposed to eat tuna when you're pregnant? I thought it's one of those things with the mercury and all that you're supposed to avoid. Well, that's only if it was real tuna instead of cattle. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're going to bring a case like this and make these types of allegations, and apparently they conducted all this testing, I mean, you better come correct because you know somebody's going to litigate this. They're not going to pay this because, I mean, forget the just the settlement. This, this is something that will affect their business. I mean, they got thousands, tens of thousands of restaurants throughout the world. So this was a huge tactical mistake by this plaintiff and her lawyers, and she's not going to get out of way, get out, get away with it with uh, some sort of voluntary dismissal without prejudice. Not going to happen. Yeah, Professor, uh, I like I like tuna. You know, I like to go for nice sushi and eat delicious tuna. And I don't expect when I go to a place like Subway, I'm spending like four bucks on twelve inches of food product that it's going to be the highest quality tuna. I mean, come on, these lawsuits are are nuts, aren't they? They are, but you know what's interesting, and well, I don't really feel sad for Subway, but sad for Subway is that the damage has been done. People saw those headlines that it isn't real tuna. And it is very hard once someone has something in their mind to change their ideas on things. That's why stereotypes are so hard to overcome and change. Our brains have to work to process new information, to change our ideas, and our brains don't like to work. So we may hear a story about how the lawsuits dropped, or I think she changed the wording to, well, maybe it's tuna, but it's not 100% sustainably farmed or something like that. No, our, uh, we're just going to pass that by. We've got in our minds, it's not tuna. They're doing something shady or gross. And that's going to stay with people. Hey, lady, maybe try the turkey. How's that? I'm just going to make a suggestion. Maybe try a, 12, a six inch turkey. So Better Are they turkey. range turkeys? Yeah, exactly. Or Jersey Mike's. Try Jersey Mike's. Mm. Maybe Subway should have thought before they named the turkey sandwich totally turkey when it's not totally turkey. Right. Uh, Rachel, another story we've been following for some time. Alex Murdaugh has admitted to lying about his housekeeper's death. This is the least surprising thing ever. Alex Murdoch is a liar. So he is now... Um, being sued for this insurance money that was paid out to his housekeeper that he kept um, regarding her death in his house. And he had said that she said it was the dogs that tripped her when she fell down the set of stairs. And there was kind of this long drawn out Maggie and him had called 911 and Maggie and Paul and him had heard her talk about the dogs tripping her. And now shockingly, he's just, here's something else. He's coming clean. He's coming clean. It wasn't the dogs. He made it up. So um, this is, maybe he's feeling cathartic. Um, Maybe prisons got him feeling a little truthful, but least surprising thing ever, Alex Murdoch is a liar. 
Yeah, newsflash: this convicted murderer is uh, is not telling the truth. But my biggest problem with it with this story, uh, Professor, is like, why blame the dogs? These poor innocent dogs. You know, it's a the low blow, especially in light of you know, the Westminster Dog Show. I think they had their best in show yesterday. I mean, don't blame those poor dogs. They got they can't defend themselves. I mean, hey, it worked out for him, right? He he got away with whatever happened there that he's saying now isn't true for 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 a couple of years. Uh, maybe that emboldened him to think he could also kill his wife and child and get away with it. You know, hey, I blamed it on the dogs. Maybe he was going to try to use the dogs again, and could the dogs have pulled the trigger? Who knows? He probably thought about it. Nima. A lot of dogs in the Alex Murdoch. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so so Alex here is obviously trying to, you know, he stole money from many, many clients, right? And he's trying to avoid paying him back. I don't know why, you know, maybe he wants to get, get this money to his surviving son. But, you know, ultimately what he did was say, or at least allege that he set up this false insurance claim, right? That housekeeper died on her own, uh, but he had to, create some sort of theory of negligence. So he threw the dogs, he threw her to the dogs, literally, and blamed the dogs for her tripping. But really, that's not why she tripped. She died of, on her own of some sort of natural causes. But to set up this claim, which ultimately he handled on behalf of the housekeeper's family, got the settlement, kept the money. Um, it's really sort of shameful. Um, the housekeeper's family is really upset um, because now their deceased family member is being blamed probably untruthfully, for participating in this fraudulent insurance scheme. Professor, really quick, before we move on to our last story, we had you on in the past to talk about Murdoch. I mean, what is it about the Murdoch case that makes it continuing to be so compelling? You know, it's almost like the Gwyneth Paltrow trial was the same thing. You almost don't want to give it up, right? Some of the news this week with Paltrow was that she's not going to collect attorney's fees after all. Um, what is it about these true crime stories, these in particular, Paltrow, Murdoch, that makes us almost miss them in some respects, right? You want to keep talking about them. It brings everyone together, right? Everybody has something to say about the Murdoch case. Everybody has heard some sort of element about it, whether they actually watch the trial or they've seen the headlines. It's a community, and we can talk about the forensics elements of, of, of the crime. We can talk about a husband murdering his wife and kids. We can talk about the, the mystery element. Did he really do it? And it just keeps coming. Now the housekeeper stuff is coming up again. Then we've got the stuff about his, his son's acquaintance. Was he murdered? Was he run over? I mean... It's not ending. It just keeps going. It's the gift that keeps on giving. I've heard of Facebook Marketplace, but never Facebook Market Face. Rich, an Arkansas woman is pleading not guilty to selling over 20 boxes. Welcome to the show, Rachel, of over 20 boxes of stolen human body parts. Yeah, the uh, Facebook, private Facebook group uh, is named Oddities. It contains about 300 members and bills itself as a, quote, safe way to shop. I see a lot of safe way to shop groups in Facebook. Um, I've never seen one like this. Uh, the charge, as you mentioned, against Candace Chapman Scott, Joe, is that uh, she stole 20 boxes of everything from human skin to skulls uh, to, a, to a guy in Philadelphia. This is according to the federal grand jury indictment that was just uh, unsealed in Little Rock. Um, she allegedly stole these from a med- from medical school cadavers and sold them through Facebook for $11,000. Some of the transactions were involving um, this quote. I follow your page and work and love it, uh, the alleged purchaser said. Just out of curiosity, would you know anyone in the market for a fully intact embalmed brain? Or actually, that's what the uh, the seller said. 
over the course of many months, she would uh, ship this buyer an ear, an arm, lungs, livers, kidneys, hands, breasts, penises, fetuses, skin, skulls, and in one case, a whole human head. Uh, she got about $11,000 in 16 separate PayPal transfers. I don't know what you put in the little you know, box there about what it's for. Um, but uh, yeah, she was arrested. Uh, thankfully, now let's make it clear. These are not, like, she wasn't accused of murder or anything, Rachel. She, But, but still a pretty uh, grisly story here. Yeah, th- this is disgusting. Um, and these kinds of stories pop up and it, it you have the funeral home stories. Th- these kinds of things happen. And you've got to wonder what everybody's doing down in the depths in a very dark place doing these kinds of things. What are the people doing that she's shipping it to? Um, wh- why is there a market for this? And um, yeah, this is gross. Professor. Uh-huh. Again, your wheelhouse, what's the psychology behind uh, both selling these kind of products and most disgustingly buying them? And what are you, what are you doing with these products once you open that? You know, I get excited when I get an Amazon box, almost daily. <laughs> you know, but I'm getting like deodorants and sometimes socks. I'm not getting uh, livers and skin. Uh, did you really have to make me think about this today? This is creepy. I keep imagining the parts in the box going through the mail and uh, what's in the box. My Amazon yeah. was my package of, of, you know, kids toys situated next to the human head in the Amazon truck. Uh, you know, so the Candace, the, the, the woman stealing these parts, that's a little weird that you could see her being just monetarily motivated, right? She came up with a, a good business idea. We're just creating these parts. There's people who will buy them. Let's sell them. All right, she may, I mean, it's, it's odd, but she, she may not be super creepy. But then the guy who runs the Facebook group is then selling them to other people. And like you said, we don't know what they're doing with them. And you can think, well, there's legitimate needs for human body parts for research and that. But what legitimate lab is buying their human body parts off of marketplace? It has to be, what, one of these serial killers that haven't, haven't killed someone yet? Some sort of weird fetish? And then can you imagine if you donated your mom's body to science a couple years ago. And then you get a call and they say, well, actually we found out that your mom's ear was stolen by this woman and sold on Facebook marketplace. And we don't know where it is. Oh, that is horrifying. Yeah. Uh, Joe, we'll go around. We'll end this segment on today's show. <laughs> I can't imagine where you're going to take this one. <laughs> I'm not gonna ask if you, you were to get a body part <laughs> mailed to you, which body part would be your favorite body part? No, no, we'll talk about our some of our favorite creepy movies. I just mentioned, you know, the famous quote from the movie Seven, What's in the Box, applies to this case. Famously, at the end of that movie, uh, you know, um, Brad Pitt discovered Gwyneth Paltrow's head in the box, mailed to her by the uh, Kevin Spacey character in that movie. So, Joe, what's your favorite movie about? Serial killers, creepy guys, creepy killers, anything like that. I think I've said this before, but it's still the scariest movie I've seen in theaters and The Strangers because it's not totally gory. It's not totally mysterious. It just always continues that slight thought of something very, very bad might go. And it's realistic. I mean, they're away in a cabin by themselves. They don't know what's going on. Um, So, yeah, I'll stick with my guns of The Strangers. Nyema, yeah, crime, murder, serial killers, lots of great movies out there about those. What's your what's your go-to? 
Uh, Rich, I gotta go. If we're talking body parts, I gotta go with saw. So what's mm. worse than having to sever your own limb to survive? Um, hopefully you don't have to sell it to someone. Classic, classic. Rachel. I think I'll go Silence of the Lambs. I can't really take a good body parts movie. That's as far as I as I can get. And I did see <laughs> seven and now I'm gonna think about it. Thanks. Think of the skin, right? I mean, there's uses a skin mask in, in that case, uh, quite effectively Hannibal. Uh, professor, favorite body parts movie, favorite serial killer movie. You know, it's been a long time, but one of the early The Hills Have Eyes. Really. Oh, yeah. yeah, and I can still see the image of a, the father being tied up to the tree and, and lit on fire. And there was there was sexual assault. There was murder. I have never watched it again. So I don't even know if I could say it was my favorite, but it's the one that made an impact on me and scared me to death. It's everything from today's podcast wrapped up in one more movie. <laughs> Great marketing. Rich, did you say yours? Well, I really like Seven. Oh, Seven, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I like a lot. I mean, I like The Bone Collector. You know, I like a lot of those, like, mid to late 90s. I mean, they were all sort of in the wake of uh, Signs of the Lamb. But anytime there's a killer out there on the loose and there's a doggy detective chasing them down, you're talking my language. I'm, I'm and surprised. I think the real... The real question is, what is Alex Murdoch's dog's favorite body part? I think that's (laughs) what a way to go out on a big thanks to all of our guests here on the Legal Face Off podcast. Big thanks to Rachel Pizzay filling in for Tina Martini, for Amanda Vickery, for Nima Romani, for our earlier guests, David Harris, Erwin Chimarinsky, Mary Clefetta and Jennifer Jenkins. And for Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. Another big thanks to our producer, Ben Anderson. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Faceoff podcast. Please do us a favor and give us five stars. And we will see you in a couple of weeks. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Cover in sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.